Good morning, church. I want you to uh, think about a time when your life was on the line. Some of you have had like an actual near-death experience. Some of you not so much, but you know, you were like, I was pretty scared, right? I, I thought about years ago, we were coming home from a missions trip in Haiti, and there was a bunch of wild things that had precipitated, but we had, uh, the flight had gotten canceled, our team of like, you know, 18 people actually ended up getting split up, we were sent to various different transition airports around the country, in groups of two or three, to try to rebook the flight, so we had been up for like 24 hours, finally, my son and I, and I think two other people from our team, were headed back to fly into Dulles Airport, and about a half an hour out of D.C., this big storm uh, kicked up, like 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 the real deal, wind blowing, uh, um, thunder, lightning, the plane is blowing around, like we're dropping, you know, turbulence and, and all that kind of stuff, like the little yellow Dixie cups never fell out of the, the, the ceiling, but it was pretty bad, like people were definitely uncomfortable, people were definitely upset, and as we approach a Dulles airport, you know, you're just thinking like, just get this plane on the ground, right? And so the plane descends, and I'm not making this up, the plane descends, I look out of the window, I see the runway, I mean, in my mind, it looks 20 feet. It might have been, you know, 100 feet, but like, I could definitely see the runway. Some of you are going to come up to me after church and be like, you weren't that close. We were close, Okay. So we're approaching the runway. I look out. I see the runway. And all of a sudden, the plane pulls up, like like dramatically, like just pulls back up into the sky, right? And the, the pilot comes on, the little intercom, and he was very calm and a very calm voice, right? Now, he was calm, but at this point, people are screaming. People are yelling. The, the Dixie Cup still never fell out, but like we were all, you know, scared. And he comes on and says, uh, with those crosswinds, he said, I wasn't liking our approach too much, so we're going to go back up and uh, take another try. He says, there's, there's now some other planes in front of us, so we'll just have to circle around for a few minutes. So we're now just circling around the D.C. airport, right? Everybody's is uncomfortable. And I have to say, I think I, like on a scale, I handled it pretty well. For those of you that think that I should have like stood up and led like a prayer with the whole airplane, I did not do that. But I also was not screaming and yelling profanity. I was somewhere like in the middle, okay? And I know up here, planes don't really crash that often, but like it felt like it was a close call. To make matters worse, after about a half an hour of us going in a circle, the pilot comes back on and says, we didn't anticipate this extra flight time. We're now low on fuel, so we're going to head to Philadelphia, land and refuel. And then come back to D.C. and try again. Like, really try again. So then he, then he proceeds to say as we're coming into the Philadelphia airport, he says, we've decided as we're refueling, we're going we're gonna to find a gate and, and, and pull up to a gate. And he says, this is a pretty much a quote. He says, for those of you that would like to end your air travel today at Philadelphia, you are welcome to exit the plane when we meet up with the gate. And I'm not kidding. As soon as that door opened, 75% of the people, we didn't fly out of Philadelphia. 75% of the people, including me, got up and ran off the plane. Like that was it. We rented a car. We drove to go back to DC to pick, like we were done, right? Anybody have an experience like that with flying? Maybe a close call with a, with a, a, a car accident, maybe a medical situation where you were like, I went in and I didn't think I was coming out. 
right? Like my life was on the line. When your life is on the line, it puts you in a position where either the best is going to come out or the worst is going to come out, right? There's no pretending. There's no pretending when you are one step away from death. Where are you going to look? Where are you going to hope? Where are you going to trust? Is your faith going to hold? And so as we turn to chapter 20 of 1 Samuel in our series on the rise of a king, this is, this is the situation that David finds himself in. Job 12.20 says, In God's hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Right, Because the reality is, and David was aware of it in the story today, and I was aware of it that day on the plane, but the reality is, every day your life is on the line in the sense. right? Your, your life is, is in the hands of God, and, and in a moment it could be gone. And I hate to break it to you, but today, at this instant, you are 24 hours closer to death than you were yesterday at this same time. Right? We live every moment of every day with our lives, in a sense, on the line. We see here in, in the story, David is going to have to face that and is going to have to seek the Lord for how to handle his situation. We saw him last week. He's on the run from King Saul. Saul has decided that David is a threat. Saul has decided David needs to be put down. Three times we read last week that David escaped from Saul's grip. And now David is literally one wrong step away from death. But what's interesting is that we look closer at the story, it's not just David who's worried about his, his life, but Saul himself is now worried about his life. Jonathan, the king's son, is worried about his life as well. And we're going to see how all three of them handle it. And so after I, I pray, we're going to read together, and then we're going to look at four ways, four ways you can respond when, when life is on the line. Whether it's turning to yourself, turning to the Lord in faith or in fear. So we'll read uh, this chapter together and then unpack. Let me, let me pray again for the Lord's help. God in heaven, we thank you that we have a creator. We thank you that we have a sustainer. We thank you that we have a good, loving Father that holds us in your hands. We pray that you would enable us to trust you, to walk with you, to rest in you in the midst of whatever we're facing in this moment, in the midst of whatever your word stirs up in our hearts today. Give us faith. Give us courage. Lord, help us to learn from from your inspired, authoritative word today that you would call us to faith, to give our lives to you, not just eternally, not just in our head, but, but every moment of every day. Holy Spirit, come, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, neither great nor small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city. For there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. 
If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant. For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father, behold, this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was at hand, and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them. Then you are to come, for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall, Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in this city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me go away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established." Therefore send him and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David, because his father had disgraced him. In the morning... In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. 
And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called out after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, Jonathan rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Amen. That's God's Word. It's an amazing story. I cannot believe that this has not been turned into a movie series yet. There's like three or four part movie series in in this book at least, right? It's brilliant, breathtaking, edge of your seat drama, suspense, right? And it all starts, look back up at verse 1. David is running from Naoth. He goes to find Jonathan, probably back at the capital city of Gibeah. Things have at least calmed down enough that David can go speak to Jonathan. And he's like, he's like, Jonathan, what, what is my great sin? What, what have I done? Tell me, what am I guilty of? Why is your father trying to kill me? Jonathan calms him down and, and says to him, look, don't worry, don't worry. I'm not going to let anything happen to you. My father doesn't do anything without telling me. He wouldn't hide something this big from me. Right? Jonathan doesn't realize that, that David's life is on the line. Saul, in fact, has hid his plot from him. And so in verse 3, David goes on and says, Look, your father knows that we stand together in covenant. He's not telling you his true plot, but trust me, he's after me. As surely as the Lord lives, David says, I am one step away from death. David knows his life is on the line. The actions over the next 24, 48 hours are going to determine the course of the next 10 years of his life. So Jonathan asked David in verse 4, what, what do you want me to do? And David comes up with a plot to test Saul to determine Saul's true intentions. Tomorrow, the next day, is the beginning of the month. The Israelites have a festival at the beginning of every month. And so David says, look, instead of gathering with all the king's men, as I'm supposed to do, I'm going to go hide out. And if Saul asks about me, just tell, tell him that I went back to a festival in Bethlehem. And, and if Saul's fine with that, then we'll know maybe everything is actually okay. Maybe his anger is worn off. But if, if your father gets angry, if he gets suspicious, then we'll know that he still wants to harm me. Now, I find it fascinating that hope beyond hope, David still thinks maybe he can repair the relationship with Saul. He's still holding on to the fact that maybe God can heal them. Maybe he can stay in the king's service. Maybe he can continue to honor Saul. Despite Saul's pride, despite his selfishness, David still wants to... To seek reconciliation. Look, at, look down at verse 8. I want to focus on this profound statement. This faithful, courageous statement that David makes in verse 8. David says to Jonathan, look, please stand by me. Please deal kindly with me since we stand together in covenant before God. And look, if I really have done anything wrong that's worthy of death, Jonathan, you kill me yourself. I'd rather you do it than you turn me over to your father. Do you hear David's heart in that? He's like, look, if, if I've really done anything guilty of, of treason, then, then I'm willing to die. Jonathan, of course, responds and, and says, never. I would never harm you. I would never let anything happen to you. You've done nothing deserving of death. And he assures David, look, if there is a plot, I will tell you. 
And we see the, the beautiful, faithful heart of David that when his life is on the line, his faith stands strong and, and it builds courage in the heart of David. He's so humble. He has so much trust in God that he's willing to die. If the right thing means that he is to be executed, David is willing to do it. Now Jonathan convinces him, look, you've done nothing. You, you, you have no plot of insurrection. You've done nothing treasonous to the king. There's no reason for you to die. But David is submitted to the will of God. Do you see that? And so he, he's literally putting his life in Jonathan's hands. He's saying, look, if, if it's right for me to die, if that's what's best for Israel, I'm willing to give myself up. Now, now of course, David is not perfect. He's not claiming to be perfect. When it says there's no guilt in him worthy of death, it means that, that there's, not, there's no insurrection, there's no treason against the king. David has done nothing but serve the king, despite the king's attempt to kill him. But his faith is, is, is giving him this great courage. Cur- courageous enough to even give up his own life. If that's what justice requires, if that's what will bring peace to the nation, if that's what will heal Israel, David says to Jonathan, you kill me yourself. And we see this amazing, profound heart of faith and courage and self-sacrifice in David. And I believe that heart ultimately comes to fulfillment and fullness in the life of Jesus himself. Look at Jesus, the ultimate anointed king, the true Messiah. Similar to David, his life was being threatened. The Jewish ruling council was hunting Jesus the same way David was hunted. They they brought up charges before the Roman authorities charging Jesus with treason, with claiming to be the king of Israel. Now when the Roman governor Pilate examined Jesus, he was the judge of the case, three times, if, if you look at Luke's gospel, three times Pilate says, I do not find any guilt in him on the charges that you've brought. I don't find him guilty of anything deserving of death. The same thing that was said about David. Now keep in mind, Jesus is not trying to argue his way out of the charges. Jesus is letting himself be falsely accused. I think Jesus would have been a pretty good lawyer, right, if he had wanted to stand up before Pilate and argue the case. I think he could have outwitted the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But Jesus was not going to fight his way out of it. When they came to arrest him in the garden... His disciples tried to fight back. What does Jesus do? He says, put your swords away. He says, don't you realize if I wanted, I could call on my father. He would send thousands of legions of angels down here to defend me. But that's not how this is going to go down. Listen, Jesus loved his father. Jesus had faith in his father's plan. And Jesus had courage to face his own death. To face his own death. The judgment for sin. Why? So that he could bring peace to the land. So that he could heal God's people. David wasn't guilty of anything deserving of death, and neither was Jesus. David was was only willing to die for the nation. Jesus actually did die for the nation of God's people. Jesus bore our sins. He took on our guilt, took on our shame. Jesus died in our place. Why? So that we could go free. So that we could live in righteousness. So that we could finally be free to serve God and God alone as our one true King. The Apostle Peter summarizes Jesus' sacrifice this way. When He, Jesus, was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten. But continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. 
He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Again and again we see David's life foreshadowing as this prototype of the Messiah. We see how faith builds courage. That Jesus Himself trusted in the plan of the Father, courageously faced death, laid His life on the line, though He had not done anything worthy of death, that that you and I might live, that by His wounds we would be healed. That we could live in righteousness. So we see in the story, David's life is on the line. He stands in faith and courage. But it's not just David. In a very real sense, Jonathan's life is on the line as well. Look down at verse 10. We see Jonathan in the midst of his devotion, is going to seek mercy. In verses 10 and 11, David and Jonathan go outside the city to the surrounding fields. They are now away from the king's officials, away from spies, and they establish this signal plan, right? To warn David if Saul really does want him dead. And and here's basically the plot. Jonathan's going to shoot some arrows. He's going to bring out a, a little servant boy who will be clueless, right? And if the arrows are in front of the servant, in front of the target, that means David is safe and he can come back into the city. If the arrows are beyond the target, it means that David's life is at risk and he needs to run. Now in verses 12 and 13, Jonathan assures David again that he's going to search out his father's true intention. If there's any real threat, he says, I will come back and warn you, you can run to safety. And look at Jonathan's words to David in verses 13 and 14. He says, may the Lord's favor be with you just as he was with my father. That, that is, of course, before his father turned his back on God and became tormented by an evil spirit. But before that, Jonathan says, I want, want the Lord to be with you just as he was with my father. Now, now listen, Jonathan, knowing that the kingdom is going to be taken from his father. Jonathan, knowing that as the son of the king, will he will never inherit the crown. Knowing that David is the man after God's own heart that Samuel prophesied about. Knowing that David will one day be the rightful king of Israel. Jonathan, in verse 14, pleads for mercy. He says, David, when you do reign in Israel, don't cut off the steadfast love of the Lord or your steadfast love from me and my house. He says, when the Lord establishes your kingdom... When he cuts off all of your enemies from the face of the earth, even though my father is now hunting you, please don't consider me one of your enemies. Have mercy on my descendants. Now why would Jonathan say this? They're friends. They're in covenant with one another. Because Jonathan knows that in the ancient Near Eastern culture, when a new king takes the throne, the standard operating procedure is to exile or destroy all enemies, all threats, all family members of of previous monarchies, any potential threat to start the administration with a clean slate. And Jonathan says, when you start your administration, you clean the slate. Have mercy on me and my descendants. In 16 and 17, he affirms their covenant before God, saying, may the Lord hold your enemies accountable, but remember, I'm not one of them, right? And they swear again their love and their covenant for one another, that his descendants would be protected. Now, now this, this profound statement that Jonathan makes, I'm not, I'm not going to spoil it. I'm going to resist the urge. Don't do it. I'm going to resist the urge to spoil. But the, he's foreshadowing something. You've got to read 2 Samuel to read what happens. But his plead for mercy on David to, to show steadfast love to my descendants. It's this beautiful thing that's going to happen later when, when David finally does take the throne. But Jonathan, as his life is on the line, 
He's devoted to God. He's devoted to David. And that means that his instinct is to seek mercy. To seek mercy from God and from God's anointed one. See, Jonathan knows that in a very real sense, his life is on the line as well. Because if his father, the king, finds out that he's conspiring with David, he's going to be executed. In fact, the very next night at the banquet, his father Saul, in fact, does try to kill him. But, but in this moment, Jonathan is actually much more worried about what's going to happen to him and his family once David takes his place as the rightful king. Jonathan is devoted to David, but more than that, he's devoted to the Lord. And he knows that, that David is the Lord's chosen. And so he's pleading for mercy. Now he knows that he and David are, n- are not enemies. He knows that the two of them have this covenant before God. They love one another as brothers, but he also knows how volatile that a transition of power like this could be. And so he wants David's assurance. He wants David's assurance of mercy, not just for him, but for his descendants after him. He's worried about his children and grandchildren. And the word that David uses in verse 14, when he asks David to uphold his steadfast love for him, it's this Hebrew word, hesed. It's a word that's used hundreds of times in the Old Testament. And it's used to refer to God's covenant love. God's steadfast faithfulness, his, his loving kindness. And so Jonathan will say, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. Show that steadfast love of the Lord as the Lord's anointed, as the one who will be king of Israel. Jonathan knows that, that David is God's anointed, and so he's pleading for mercy from God. It's the same mercy that you and I plead. Because we are, are actually in a much more dangerous position than Jonathan was in. And, and devotion to God If you are truly devoted to God, have a heart for God, want to seek God and want to follow God, it means you too cry out for mercy. Because beyond just being the perception of of enemies of the king, we actually are, in our natural state of sin, we are enemies of God. We've turned our back on God. There's hostility. And so we call out to God. God, don't remember the sins of my youth. Don't remember all that I've done. But think of, remember your steadfast love. Treat me not according to what I deserve, but treat me according to your abundant, gracious, covenant-loving kindness for me in Christ. David himself would, would write about this the same thing in Psalm 25. Listen to the words of David. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. And so even as we've come to the table even as we've remembered the sacrifice of Jesus, even as we've remembered that in courage He laid His life on the line, our response is now to cry out to Him and to say, and to say, Christ, I trust You as Savior. I trust that You died in my place. And now to turn to God and to seek the Holy Spirit for mercy. That whatever you've done this week, whatever you did yesterday, whatever you did this morning, whatever would otherwise cut you off from the God of the universe in guilt and in shame, whatever would otherwise harden your heart, you cry out to God and say, may your steadfast covenant love be for me, God. May you forgive me that I could stand with you, that I could walk with you, that I could be called your son, your daughter, your kingdom member. And so just as Jonathan, in the midst of his devotion, sought mercy, seek that same mercy today. God's steadfast love and his kindness and his mercy and forgiveness is abundant for each of us this morning. 
Let's, let's look now at Saul's reaction. We've learned that, that it's not going to be a good one. Because even though he's still king, even though he is ultimately the source of all this commotion, in a very real sense, Saul himself is worried because he knows that his life is on the line as well. And we're going to see in the life of Saul that his ambition will ultimately cause him blindness. Look at verse 24. David's out hiding in the field. The king and all of his men are gathering for the, for the festival of the new month. All of the important commanders are there, but David's seat is empty. Now I find it very odd that after all that Saul has done to try to kill David, anybody's still saving a seat for the guy at the banquet, right? But his seat is still empty. They're still wondering where he is. And remember, Saul at this point is not acting logically. He's paranoid. He's tormented. He's mentally and emotionally, spiritually unstable. Now the first night... Saul assumes, we're told, well, David must be ceremonially unclean. And there were certain restrictions that, and processes that had to be followed to come to a holy banquet like this. He says, well, David must be unclean. But the second night, when it's, David still doesn't show up, Saul is now suspicious. And so he asks Jonathan. Jonathan tells Saul all that he and David talked about. Well, David's gone to Bethlehem. He's going to be with his family. Saul now can tell that his son Jonathan is covering up. For David, And so he lashes out. He says in verse 30, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman. I know you've sided with David, the son of Jesse. You align yourself to David to your own shame and the shame of your own mother. Right? Saul is so unraveled at this point, he's insulting the guy's mother, which, by the way, was probably his wife. Okay? But that, that's the degree to which Saul has lost it. And he says... Don't you know, son, that as long as David lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom are safe. There's no hope. Bring that ungrateful traitor here and he must die. And so we see in verse 32, Jonathan tries to talk some sense into his father. This has worked once before. He tries to reason with him and convince his father that David has not done anything worthy of death. But but Saul at this point is beyond reason. Saul is overcome with rage, with violence at this point, seeing his own son side with who he considers to be his enemy. And so Saul lashes out as he's done with David. He hurls his spear at his own son. Jonathan's able to escape. He gets up from the table. He's so angry he doesn't even eat, which that's saying something. It says that he didn't even eat that night. He left, knowing now my father will stop at nothing. Until David is dead. And we find that Saul, when his life is on the line, his own selfish ambition causes blindness. You know that expression, right? Blinded by my own ambition. He was blinded by his own ambition. It means that you are so singularly focused, so selfishly focused on what you want, that you can't see anything else. That you've become so narrow-minded that you're blind to anything else that matters. And this is Saul's condition. He's blinded by his own ambition. Because the reality is, his life is on the line right now as well. Even though he's king, even though nobody's throwing a spear at him. You remember, the great prophet Samuel has told Saul, the kingdom is not going to continue through your line. It's going to be transferred to a man after God's own heart. The prophet Samuel said to him, the the Lord has torn the kingdom from you. And as the kingdom is slipping away from Saul, Saul feels his very life slipping away. As David rises higher and higher, Saul feels himself sinking lower and lower. 
Even if Saul can survive physically the transition of power to David, what does Saul have left? Because for Saul, his whole world has become about him. His whole world has become about his agenda, his power, his ambition. In Saul's mind, without being king, he has no life at all. And this thought is tormenting him. His jealous ambition is literally driving him into a paranoid insanity. The thought of no longer being king. The thought of falling out of favor before the people. And so he's blind. Saul is now blind to the will of God. God has repeatedly tried to make his will known to Saul. Saul can't see it or hear it. Saul is blind to the injustice of his actions against David. He has convinced himself that it's right. Saul is blind to how much he's hurting the kingdom of Israel and the people of God. See, when when Saul's life is on the line, all he can see is himself. He even shouts to his own son in verse 31, As long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. But Saul doesn't care one bit about Jonathan. He doesn't say that because he's concerned about Jonathan inheriting the throne. Right? Saul proves how little he cares about his own son when he throws a spear and tries to kill him. He's saying this because he cares about himself. Because in the ancient world, a king's ambition was fulfilled through a magnificent legacy. A king wanted to be remembered through lands that were conquered and battles that were won and wealth that was acquired. But for all of that to mean anything, it had to all be passed on to a son. You had to have a son to inherit your throne, your legacy. Without a son to carry on your kingdom into the future, your legacy would end. And Saul knows that's about to happen. Unless Jonathan can inherit the throne, which he will not. That's why Saul is filled with rage at the thought that Jonathan will never sit on the throne. And so it means that, that David is in the way of his ambition. David is, is, is preventing him from having a legacy. And so David has to be taken out. See, because for Saul, all of his ambitions are about his kingdom. His kingdom. Not, not God's kingdom. He's not thinking about God's kingdom. He's concerned about his own kingdom. And every day that David lives is the day that his his kingdom is being dashed. Now, of course, as we look at the heart of Saul and his actions and his ambition, we realize that you and I, if we're honest, you and I are subject to the same selfish, prideful ambition in life. Now, none of us are ruling an actual kingdom, but we all want to be known. We all want to be loved. We all want to be remembered. We all want to be elevated. In big ways and in small ways, we all have a tendency to push our own agenda. In the process, we risk becoming so narrow-minded that we're blind to everything else. You don't know what I'm talking about? How about that desire in you that so much wants to win the argument that you're willing to hurt a dear, dear friend in the process? What about your desire for success at work, even if it means you have to push someone else down? What about your pursuit of comfort and happiness? even if it means that your loved ones are, are left out. See, every time our pride takes over, we're in essence trying to build our own kingdom. And the results are disastrous. The Word of God says in James chapter 3, wherever jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And, and Saul's life is a living, breathing demonstration of that. Now, now some of you say, okay, okay, I get it. I get that ambition can turn selfish and that selfishness can lead to sinful 
pride and, and a desire to build your own kingdom. And some of you are like, okay, but I still got to live my life, right? I still got to wake up every day and make plans. I, I still have goals. I still want to make at least enough money to, to, to live and succeed and provide for my family. Some of you are like, look, even when I try to remember godly things, there's still at times that I, I, I have desires and pursuits and that sometimes lead to anxiety and I think about food and clothing and money and I, I need to live, don't I? It's not ambition, I'm just trying to live my life. And here's what Jesus would say to you. He says in Matthew chapter 6, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. The unbelievers there seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Do you see that? Do you see that an ambition to build your own kingdom makes you blind to everything else? But seeking God's kingdom puts everything else in perspective. You hear that? If you only seek after what you want and what you need, you're in essence building your own kingdom and it makes you blind. Only, only when you seek God's kingdom and put His kingdom first does everything else, your marriage, your family, your relationships, your time, your energy, your money, only when you seek God's kingdom first does everything else become clear. Does everything else come into focus? Ambition causes blindness, but humility... And seeking the Lord first and foremost brings peace and it brings everything else into clarity. Let's look briefly at this last section beginning in verse 34. We turn back again to David and Jonathan as they're realizing that they're both now one step away from death, to use David's words. They're facing this injustice. In verse 34, Jonathan dodges his father's spear. He furiously gets up from the table. He's angry. He's sorrowful. It says in verse 34, he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Jonathan was just just almost killed by his own father, but but he's grieved for David. He's grieved for David because he's been dishonored. So the next morning in verse 35, he goes out to the field with his, his servant, He shoots the arrows. He sends the signal to David, you're in danger. He sends the servant back to the city and David comes out from his hiding place. Now it seems that originally maybe all the signals and the arrows was intended to just David to just run without meeting. But now that they realize that that things are disastrous, that they might not see each other again for a long time, they, they, they come together, overcome with sorrow, they have to meet. In verse 41, look at David's humility. He bows before Jonathan in humility and in gratitude because he knows Jonathan has just saved his life. He's acknowledging that Jonathan is still the son of the king, the senior man in the nation. He bows before him. These two, these two warriors embrace each other. They greet one another with a kiss in this tender moment of friendship before God. They weep together. They're overcome with grief. The author says that David was weeping the most. I guess because David was the one who was going to have to be running as a fugitive for the rest of his life. Verse 42, Jonathan sends David off. He gives him this blessing of peace. He affirms again their covenant, saying, The Lord Himself is the bond between you and me, extending to our descendants forever. 
You see how this chapter closes out? David and Jonathan, they realize their lives will never be the same. They realize that Saul's injustice means that they are one step away from from death. And what's their response? Their response is grief. They realize at this point they're not going to be able to change Saul's mind. That Saul is going to pursue this great injustice until it's seen through the end. And despite their good intentions, despite their faith in God, despite their covenant with one another, they cannot stop Saul's wicked ambition. Now, now, make no mistake about it. If you've been following with us in our series, we know that David and Jonathan are courageous men. They are warriors. They are leaders. And there will come a time when there will be plans to make. And there will be battles to fight and caves to hide in and weapons to gather and soldiers to bring together and alliances to build, but not right now. Right now, in that moment, they grieve. They weep. They weep because the king wants David dead. They grieve because David will live the rest of his life, or at least the rest of Saul's life, as a fugitive. They grieve because there will be no justice in Israel as long as Saul is on the throne. They grieve because it's going to be a long time before the two of them meet again. They're in the midst of of injustice, just as, as our world continues to be full of injustice. You look around, you don't have to look far to see corruption. To see the abuse of power. To see that, that the wicked in this world often win. And there are people that sin against you on a daily basis. Some of them gravely. So some people have sinned against you in a way that haunts you year after year. Worse yet, people sin against those that love us. Which is even harder than sin against our own selves. To watch a loved one be harmed. We face pain. We face sickness, we face disease, we face death. Now there are, there's a lot in this world that we can do something about. And there are instances where, where our calling is to speak truth. Where our calling is to share Christ, to offer love. And we can always pray to the God of the universe who can overcome evil in an instant. And, and there are instances, there are times when we should stand up against injustice, where we should fight impression where we can work for good. But often in the face of injustice, in the face of pain, in the face of grave circumstances that feel like you can do nothing about it, often when your life is on the line or when a loved one's life is on the line, the most faithful thing you can do, the most godly thing that you can do is to grieve. Is to to grieve, to be filled with sorrow. Don't, Don't jump too quickly to a pat answer. Don't jump too quickly and, and, and forget about your own pain or someone else's pain. And just say, well, God has a plan. It's good. God does have a plan. But in that moment, it may not be good. I remember, I remember one time a lifelong friend called me. And he had been very elusive about what was going on with his wife and some tests. And, and I finally pressed him a little bit. And he said, can you have a phone call? And you know when a brother won't text you back and says there's a phone call, you know that's not good. And I remember... I remember him sharing me with on the the phone about the, the the diagnosis his wife had gotten a chronic disease that she would fight for the rest of her life that one day would would take her life a terminal illness that his wife had been diagnosed with young healthy couple now what what am I going to do I'm not a doctor I didn't even understand half the stuff he was saying to me I, I can't can't stop this disease from slowly taking his wife's life and so we prayed and we cried together on the phone. That, that was all I could do. And, and in that moment, that was the most godly thing to do. 
That's what Jesus did at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He knew he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's still standing at the tomb weeping because death has had at least for a moment a victory. So Jesus says this in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It is a godly good thing to mourn. To mourn rightly before God and to find comfort in Him. James 4, 9-10 says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and He will exalt you. I love to laugh. I love to have fun. I love to be full of joy. But there is a time and a place for weeping and for mourning in the midst of sin, in the midst of injustice. Humble yourselves before the Lord. It may not be you. It may be someone else. You say, well, I can't identify with them. I don't know what they're going through. I've never faced what they're facing. The Word of God says in Romans 12 that we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And so if it's, if it's a spouse, if it's a child, if it's someone in your small group, if, if it's a longtime friend, if it's a neighbor who is weeping and grieving, Christian, your call is to weep with them. Because sometimes in the face of injustice, that's all you can do, at least in that moment. And that is a good and godly thing to do. Life is fragile. For David, for Jonathan, for Saul, for each one of us here, our life hangs in the balance. Every day, in a sense, your life is on the line. In one moment, one step separates each of us from death. And so the the question is, how how are we going to live in the midst of that? How are we going to live in in, in the face of that reality? First First and foremost, the call that we hopefully saw in the passage, is to turn from from your own selfish ambition. That's going to lead you nowhere. It's only going to make you more blind, more ignorant, more, more closed off to God Himself. The call is to cry out to God for mercy. To cry out to God, both in, in the midst of facing physical death, but for those that are still concerned about eternal death that have yet to turn to Christ, turn to Him now and cry out for mercy. Trust in the One who laid down His life for you and I. Walk in faith. Be reminded, Christian, to walk in faith. Walk in courage. Walk in devotion to the Lord. And sometimes, yes, devotion means grieving and weeping. But we have hope, amen? We have hope because Christ not only died for us, He rose for us. And so we can stand even in the midst of life, in the midst of death, in the midst of grief, we can stand in hope. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Those that the Lord is stirring, there are going to be some folks gathered here on the side to, to pray with you as we sing. They'll be available after we close as well. Why don't we all stand together as we prepare our hearts to look to the Lord and worship. God, as we stand together, we stand up in faith. We stand up in courage, but we also stand up in the midst of our worries, in the midst of our anxieties, in the midst of our godly grief, in the midst of our fear, in the midst of our our, our ambition that, that still clings. And we ask for peace. We ask for faith. God, as we sing this song, may it be a prayer to us that Christ would be lifted up. That Christ would be lifted up in our hearts. That He would stir our faith. We're so thankful for His devotion. For His courage in laying down His life for us. And we now turn to Him. And ask that He would build our faith.
that He would stir us. We put our lives in Your hands, O Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill us now. Humble us that we could walk with You. In Jesus' name.